and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 8.3, The Gift of Black Folk. And welcome back to Musings on History. This episode is the third in my series on the life of wor- and work of Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, and it is titled The Gift of Black Folk, named for the 1924 book that Dr. Du Bois wrote about the history of African-American contributions to wider American history and culture. During this time, he continued to advocate for civil rights and pan-Africanism, He made a new enemy in Marcus Garvey, and he begins to lose his patience with American incrementalism. Chapter 1, Post-World War I, Black America and the Red Summer of 1919. Last episode, I talked about the 1917 Houston riots, where 156 soldiers from the all-Black 24th Infantry Regiment of the United States Army rioted in Houston, Texas due to their frustration with the harsh treatment of Black Americans by the Houston police. After white Houston Police Department officers assaulted and arrested some Black soldiers from nearby Camp Logan, the other Black soldiers mutinied and marched to Houston where they opened fire and killed 11 civilians and five policemen. Four soldiers were also killed and Sergeant Vita Henry, who led the mutineers, chose to commit suicide rather than turn himself into police. In accordance with policies of the time, the soldiers were tried at three courts martial, 19 were executed, and 41 were sentenced to life in prison. Following this incident, many in the military brass and federal government were concerned by what they saw as a radical tone from Dr. Du Bois. The Houston riots and the white reactions to it had shaken Dr. Du Bois and many other Black Americans' faith in the government to protect Black people or treat them equally, even as Black people joined the war effort in defense of America. The the feds attempted to intimidate Dr. Du Bois and the NAACP by threatening them with investigation. However, Dr. Du Bois was not intimidated, and in 1918, he predicted that World War I would lead to an overthrow of the European colonial system and to the liberation of colored people worldwide. His good friend, the NAACP chairman, Joel Springarn, had to convince the War Department not to try Dr. Du Bois for a seditious speech, and Springarn saw World War I as an opportunity for Black Americans to prove their patriotism and bridge racial gaps, which I think is complete bullshit because why would the descendants of slaves need to prove anything to the descendants of their enslavers? Springarn convinced Dr. Du Bois to accept an officer's commission in the army contingent on Dr. Du Bois writing an editorial repudiating his anti-war stance. Dr. Du Bois accepted this bargain and wrote the pro-war close ranks editorial in June 1918, and soon thereafter, he received a commission in the army. Many Black leaders who had wanted to leverage the war effort as a means to bargain for more civil rights for Black Americans in exchange for Black people's participation in the war effort criticized Dr. Du Bois for his sudden reversal. 
Southern white officers in Dr. Du Bois' unit objected to his presence and his commission was withdrawn, but the point is he didn't go to prison. After the armistice ended the First World War in 1918, Dr. Du Bois traveled to Europe in 1919 to attend the first Pan-African Congress and to interview African-American soldiers about their experiences in the war for a planned book. The entire time he was in Europe, he was tailed by U.S. agents who were looking for evidence of treasonous activities. So not so fun fact, well into the 1970s, Black Americans were frequently denied passports by the U.S. government, specifically because the U.S. government was afraid that if Black Americans gained an international perspective, they would either return to the U.S. and begin agitating for civil rights and Black sovereignty, or they'd start protesting America's fledgling attempts at imperialism. And they also did this frequently to Native Americans. While in Europe, Dr. Du Bois discovered that the vast majority of Black American soldiers had been relegated to menial labor as stevedores and laborers, and that not all the units were armed, which is super fucked up because it's a war. Like, I volunteered to fight in your little war that you really shouldn't have gotten involved in, and then you send me into danger and don't even give me a way to protect myself. Some of the units, however, were armed, and one in particular, the 92nd Division, the Buffalo Soldiers, engaged in combat, which made them national heroes when they returned. Dr. Du Bois' interviews discovered widespread racism in the Army, and Dr. Du Bois concluded from these interviews that the Army Command discouraged African Americans from joining the Army, discredited the accomplishments of Black soldiers, and promoted bigotry. These findings made Dr. Du Bois more determined than ever to gain equal rights for African-Americans. Meanwhile, a post-World War I zeitgeist was happening in Black America. Black soldiers returning from Europe felt a new sense of worth and power and were representative of an emerging attitude that was referred to as the New Negro. Dr. Du Bois wrote about this new attitude in the editorial Returning Soldiers, where he states, But by the God of heaven, we are cowards and jackasses if, now that the war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. The time period was also the period of the first Great Migration, a period when many Black Americans were moving to northern cities in search of work. World War I had sped up industrialization in many northern cities with the white male workforce mostly off fighting in Europe. So Black Americans of all genders served as a replacement workforce in the factories. After the war, the returning white workers resented having to compete with an industrialized Black workforce who would also work for less money in some cases. This labor strife was the chief cause of the Red Summer of 1919, which was a series of horrific race riots that occurred in cities and towns across America. Now, this is going to be my first rant of the evening because this is my podcast and I can do that. Narrative framing is one of those things that Black people are criticized for pointing out or focusing on, but everybody tends to do it with our histories and it's usually not for our benefit. The bloody summer of 1919 is usually centered around Greenwood, the prosperous middle-class Black neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the framing is usually that of, look at what Black capitalism can do and how much it scares white people. And this narrative framing is a historical bullshit. Bloody summer actually began in the small, poor, rural farming community of Elaine, 
Arkansas, and in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where the Communist Party of the United States had organized Black and white and Native farmers to agitate for better pay, fewer debt traps, and better working conditions. Now, if you'd like to read a more in-depth analysis of the CPUSA and the Black farmers in Elaine, Tuscaloosa, Rosewood, and other towns, I suggest reading Hammer and Ho by Robert D.G. Kelly. The Tulsa massacre was not white people being jealous of black wealth. It was the same trumped up accusations and weaponization of white womanhood that led to the lynching of Sam Hose and to the flight of all the black families from Forsyth County in the 1920s. The Tulsa riot began when a 19-year-old black boy named Dick Rowland was accused of assaulting a white woman named Sarah Page. And as he was being taken into custody, a lynch mob formed. 75 black men from Greenwood, which was the... Black town, black part of town, confronted the lynch mob outside of the police station where Roland was being held to ensure that Roland wouldn't be lynched. They actually like circled the um, police station with their uh, rifles. The white sheriff persuaded the group of black men, some of most of whom were armed, to leave the jail, assuring them that he had the situation under control. And then an elderly white man approached a black man named O.D. Mann and demanded that Mann hand over his pistol to him. Mann, of course, refused, and the old man attempted to disarm him, at which point Mann shot the old fool. And then, according to the Tulsa Sheriff's Department, all hell broke loose. By the end of the first gunfight, 12 people were dead, 10 white and two black. And the black men who had participated in the gunfight fled back to Greenwood to escape, which was ultimately a terrible idea. Uh, when the white residents found out about the gunfight outside the sheriff's office and how they hadn't gotten the best of it, mob violence broke out across the city and white rioters invaded Greenwood that night, killing men that they found on the street who were standing outside their homes trying to protect their families and their property and were looting and burning as they went. Around noon on June 1st, the Oklahoma National Guard imposed martial law, which ended the massacre. So as you see, the Tulsa massacre was a bit more complex than just white people jealous of black wealth. Prior to the massacre, the white population of Tulsa had actually praised Greenwood as proof of what black people were capable of when they focused on making economic strides and left politics and voting rights and stuff like that to the whites. But there is another aspect of the Tulsa massacre that should be examined, an aspect that was common in the race riots that happened in more rural black communities, and that was land seizure. In cities like East St. Louis and Washington, D.C., which I'm going to go into detail about in a few minutes, black people might have owned homes in certain areas, but the popularity was primarily composed of tenants, workers. However, in towns like Rosewood in Central Florida, Statesboro, Georgia, and Elaine, Arkansas, there were still small communities of Black landholders who, though they might not have been wealthy by today's standards or even standards of the day, they were self-sufficient, which was arguably more important than being wealthy, and they owned their land and not only made a living from it, but they also, you know, they were able to keep that land. Land is the most durable asset that there is. They're not making any more land. It will always be, you know, if you got good land for farming, timber, aquaculture, there's so many different things that you can do on it, or you can just let it sit there 
either way, when it's yours, it's yours. And people in these small towns uh, were able to, I mean, if they could raise hogs on it, chop timber, if there was pitch on their land, that's wealthy by, you know, rural standards. So what these race riots did first and foremost was kill as many of these black landowners as was possible. And those that they didn't kill, they sufficiently frightened them into running off the land. A lot of times not even taking the deed or whatever with them. And then it enabled the white people to claim the land that the survivors hurriedly left behind when they moved north, as was the case in Forsyth County. During bloody summer, over 300 Black Americans were killed in all over 30 cities, and the term Red Summer was coined by civil rights activist and author James Weldon Johnson, who was employed as a field secretary by the NAACP at the time. To bring awareness to this spate of anti-Black violence, he and Dr. Du Bois organized peaceful protests against the racial violence that had occurred that summer. However, peaceful protests did not bring an end to the violence. After Black American vets in Washington, D.C. and Chicago organized themselves into defensive units and women's groups took steps to hide the women and children, Black American communities in these cities fought back against the encroaching mob violence. And after they were successful in not only keeping Black black death tolls lower than they had been in East St. Louis, Greenwood, and New York City, the number and intensity of the race riots died down considerably. Everybody hits people till you hit them back, right? So hit back. In Washington, D.C., there was a substantial contingent of affluent Black Americans who had attended Howard University, which is located in the LaDroit Park area of Northwest Washington, D.C. At the time, LaDroit Park was a white neighborhood and the Black areas of the city were mainly in Southwest and Southeast D.C., But Howard students and faculty and staff had begun buying homes in the area, and the local newspapers not only anticipated that a rice riot would soon occur, they were kind of agitating for one to occur, which is a little little interesting. As usual, the race riot began with a Black man, this time named Charles Rawls, who was from Southwest D.C., being accused of assaulting a white woman, Elsie Stepnick, who was married to a civilian employee of the U.S. Navy. Rawls was brought in for questioning by the police and soon let go after a lack of evidence. Elsie Stefanik never accused Charles Rawls directly. Her husband, who worked in the same area that Charles Rawls lived in, did the accusing for her. The lack of evidence, of course, didn't matter as sensationalist newspaper campaigns from the Washington Post had been concocting stories about the alleged sexual crimes of Negro fiends, which had white D.C. residents on edge and the black D.C. residents ready to fight and protect themselves. The riot began on a Saturday, 19 July 1919, when a rumor at a bar in Navy Yard began circulating that the D.C. police had let a black rapist go free. As the servicemen got sufficiently riled up, they spread the rumor to other bars and soon a lynch mob was formed headed for Southwest D.C., As David Krugler wrote in his book, 1919, The Year of Racial Violence, Charles Rawls and his wife were found by the mob who then started beating them with bats and wooden boards and the couple managed to escape and ran home. 
The mob, of course, followed them where they were met by Rawls' neighbors and friends who rallied to his defense and were able to beat back the lynch mob, wounding several sailors in the process. The other Black residents bolted their homes and and prepared to defend their families as the lynch mob scattered to regroup and find reinforcements. And with all of these like Black trauma shows and, and, you know, bringing awareness to Red Summer and all that stuff, two things that I find are always missing. One, they never, ever focus on the fact that like these Black communities were organized and a lot of the rural ones were like, you know, reading the Communist Manifesto. So of course they're going to leave out the Communist part. And then the other thing that they, I find that these these uh, television shows tend not to emphasize is that we didn't just like lay down and let these white people come into our communities and set fire to stuff. And we just sat there and cried or whatever. We fought back every in every situation in East St. Louis and New York city, definitely in Washington, DC, we fought back. We defended our homes. We defended the women and the children and the elderly and I always just find that real interesting that they always just show us crying as everything burns around us, but they never show that we we pretty much gave it as good as we got it, especially in Washington, D.C. Now, having been successfully routed from Charles Rawls' neighborhood, the lynch mob instead moved to terrorize any Black people that they could find on the streets and set fire to their homes. The police response was to not respond at all, and many Black people were dragged from their homes and cars and beaten on that first night. The second night, Black people were more prepared, but the white people, emboldened by the lack of police response, were more violent and greater in number. The dean of students at Howard University, Carter G. Woodson, infamously hid in the office of a white friend in order to avoid confrontation. When many Howard students had stayed on campus to defend the campus buildings from arson, Woodson recalls that they had caught a Negro and deliberately held him as one would a beef for slaughter. And when they had conveniently adjusted him for lynching, they shot him. I heard him groaning in his struggle as I hurried away as fast as I could without running, expecting every moment to be lynched myself. So fun fact. When Dr. Du Bois heard that Carter G. Woodson had ran and left a Black student to be tortured and shot, he decided never to speak to him ever again. And when Atlanta had their race rise, Dr. Du Bois, who most people saw as kind of like a dandy and an effete, he famously took his shotgun and joined a group of Atlanta University students and Black West Side residents to defend the school and the women and children that had been moved into the buildings to be kept safe. So he might have been a dandy, but he was never a hoe. With the seat of government being right there on Capitol Hill on Pennsylvania Avenue, you would think that the response to the growing mob violence would have been swift, but no. Black people were beaten in front of the Washington Post headquarters, which kept churning out newspapers, but remained curiously silent on the barbarity that was going on right in front of their front steps. And even in front of the White House, which was occupied by Woodrow Birth of a Nation Wilson at the time. So, you know, real luck with that. Realizing that the police, military, district and federal government were not going to quell the violence, Black D.C. residents in all sectors of the city began to organize to protect themselves and their communities. A sort of underground railroad 
started to form between Black D.C. residents and Black Alexandria and even Baltimore residents to bring guns and ammunition into the city to prepare them for the next assault that they knew was coming. In response to the second night of violence, as its only acknowledgement of the terror, the Washington Post released a headline titled Mobilization for Tonight that called for all servicemen to commune on Penn Avenue around 9 p.m. on the night of 21 July 1919. Some white cavalry Marines were brought in, but it was unclear whether these new troops would be fighting the mob or joining it. Black D.C. residents, rightfully alarmed by what they saw as the Washington Post's endorsement of the violence against them, came together and spent $14,000, which is about $209,000 adjusted for inflation, on guns and ammunition in order to defend themselves. There were men and women in the ranks who made their defensive stand around 7th and U Streets. Um, And there's a plaque around 7th and U Street that um, for like the brave men and women who defended their homes and their community. And so that area was kind of the black district of Northwest DC because that's near Howard. They had sharpshooters perched on the roof of the Howard Theater while other black residents took to their cars, some cruising the streets to find women and children to get into safe houses while other pat- others patrolled the streets looking for white mob members to take out. One vehicle, driven by a Mr. Thomas Armstead of Northwest D.C., cruised along 7th Street Northwest, guns blazing, and shot down a police horse and shot the cap off an officer's head before he was stopped by a group of police. Sadly, Mr. Armstead and another passenger, 18-year-old Miss Jane Gore, were shot dead, but the other three people in the vehicle managed to get away. On the fourth night of the riots, a 17-year-old Black girl named Carrie Johnson shot at white mobs from her New York Avenue window. When the D.C. police raided her home, she fatally shot a white policeman and claimed self-defense. Damn, what a badass. Now, it was worth noting that Carrie was, one, in her home, and two, that her father had been shot earlier through the shoulder before she ever fired a shot. But she was arrested and charged with the shooting while no one was charged in her father's shooting or in the arson of the homes adjacent to hers. In January 1921, a trial was finally heard, the United States versus Carrie Johnson. Her father didn't testify, but the prosecutor announced in front of the jury that charges against Ben Johnson had been dropped, implying that Carrie Johnson must have committed the crime alone. She was convicted of manslaughter, but a separate judge accepted the self-defense argument and overturned that verdict. To avoid a second trial, all charges were dropped and Carrie Johnson went free on 21 June 1921. And I hereby declare the 21st of June, Carrie Johnson Day. Because that that is a badass. I like her. Via the Crisis Magazine, the NAACP published a telegram that had been sent to President Woodrow Wilson. It read, The shame put upon the country by the mobs, including U.S. soldiers, sailors, and Marines, which have assaulted innocent and unoffending Negroes in the nation, national capital. Men in uniform have attacked Negroes in the streets and pulled them from streetcars to beat them. Crowds are reported to have directed attacks against any passing Negro. The effect of such riots in the national capital upon race antagonism will be to increase bitterness and danger of outbreaks elsewhere. 
The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People calls upon you as president and commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the nation to make a statement condemning mob violence and to enforce such military law as the situation demands. And the effect of this telegram was palpable. For Black Americans, the lack of urgency by the government to protect the Black D.C. residents led many to also start community defense brigades. And to white Americans, it made them feel vulnerable because it seemed to them that the government was afraid to intervene and crush the Black D.C. residents who were fighting back. In other cities, most notably in East St. Louis and Chicago, the police were actively encouraging and in some cases participating in the mob violence. The most egregious episode during Red Summer, of course, was the vicious attack on black sharecroppers in Elaine, Arkansas, in which nearly 200 were murdered. The official reports that came out of Southern newspapers blamed the sharecroppers, alleging a socialist plot to overthrow the government. Yeah, because if I was going to overthrow the U.S. government, I would start my revolution in Elaine, Arkansas, with all its strategic importance. Infuriated by these distortions, Dr. Du Bois published a letter in the New York World claiming that the only crime the black sharecroppers had committed was daring to challenge their white landlords by hiring an attorney to investigate contractual irregularities and through forming a union. In a case known as Moore versus Dempsey, Dr. Du Bois rallied Black people across America to raise funds for the legal defense of the Elaine sharecroppers, which also marked his first contact with the Communist Party of the U.S. Six years later, a Supreme Court victory authored by Oliver Wendell Holmes marked the first time the federal government used the 14th Amendment guarantee of due process to prevent states from shielding and promoting mob violence. Chapter two, what's really beef? W.E.B. Du Bois versus Marcus Garvey and the Pan-African Congress. In 1920, Dr. Du Bois published the first of his three biographies, Dark Water, Voices from Within the Veil. Continuing the theme of the veil that he had established in the souls of black folk, Dark Water discussed the veil which covered colored people around the world. In the book, he hoped to lift this veil to show white readers, what life was like behind it and how it distorted the viewpoints of those looking through it in both directions. The book contained Dr. Du Bois' feminist essay, The Damnation of Women, which was a tribute to the dignity and worth of women, particularly Black women. He also turned his attention to the education and enlightenment of Black children. Concerned that textbooks used by African-American children ignored Black history, culture, and Black contributions to American history, Dr. Du Bois created a monthly children's magazine called The Brownies Book. Initially published in 1920, it was aimed at Black children who Dr. Du Bois lovingly called the Children of the Sun. In February 1919, Dr. Du Bois and Ida Gibbs Hunt, the wife of U.S. Consul William Henry Hunt, organized the inaugural Pan-African Congress. There were 57 delegates representing 15 countries at this conference, which was a smaller number than originally planned because the British and American governments had refused to issue passports to people who planned to attend. The reason for this was because the first African Congress planned to petition the Versailles Peace Conference to demand, among other things, that one, the Allied powers should be in charge of the administration of former territories in Africa as a condominium on behalf of the Africans that were living there, and two, African colonies 
had, should be granted home rule and Africans should take part in governing their countries as fast as their development permits until some specified time in the future. Among the delegates to the Congress were Eliezer Cadet, a Haitian voodoo priest who served as the delegate on behalf of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. He was initially supposed to be the French translator for A. Philip Randolph and Ida B. Wells Barnett, but the U.S. government denied them passports to attend the conference. There was also Gratien Candace, a politician from Guadeloupe who served in the French Chamber of Deputies from 1912 to 1942, and Blaise Diagne, a Senegalese political leader and mayor of Dakar. He was the first Black African elected to the French Chamber of Deputies and the first to hold a position in the French government. Also in attendance were Reverend William Jernigan, an African-American Baptist pastor, Charles D.B. King, a Liberian politician who served as the 17th president of Liberia from 1920 to 1930, and Richard R. Wright Sr., a Black American military officer, educator, and college president, politician, civil rights activist, uh, act advocate, and banking entrepreneur who was born a slave in Dalton, Georgia. And he also founded a high school, a college, and a bank. In 1921, Dr. Du Bois returned to Europe to attend the second Pan-African Congress. At this conference, the assembled Black leaders issued the London Resolution, which under Dr. Du Bois' guidance, insisted on racial equality and that Africa be ruled by Africans as opposed to the mere consent to be ruled. It echoed the home rule versus independence fight that was going on in Ireland at the time, which is why the delegates of the Second Pan-African Congress were unceremoniously kicked out of the UK in the middle of the conference and Dr. Du Bois had to hurry up and secure lodgings for himself and the delegation in Brussels. The right to rule by Africans was reiterated by Dr. Du Bois in his manifesto to the League of Nations, which implored the newly formed League to address labor issues and to appoint Africans to key posts within the League. The League, of course, ignored these requests and recommendations. And as Dr. Du Bois reported in the crisis in November of that year, Represented at this Congress were 26 groups of people of Negro descent, namely British Nigeria, Gold Coast, and Sierra Leone, the Egyptian Sudan, British East Africa, former German East Africa, French Senegal, the French Congo and Madagascar, Belgian Congo, Portuguese Saint Tome, Angola and Mozambique, Liberia, Abyssinia, Haiti, British Jamaica and Grenada, French Martinique and Guadeloupe, British Guiana, the United States of America, Negroes resident in England, France, Belgium, and Portugal, and fraternal visitors from India, Morocco, the Philippines, and Anam. There was an Indian revolutionary who took part, Shapshuri Saklavala, okay, there we go, and a journalist from the Gold Coast, which is present-day Ghana, named W.F. Hutchison, who also spoke. The London session was later restated by Dr. Du Bois in his manifesto to the League of Nations, where he said, If we are coming to recognize that the great modern problem is to correct maladjustment in the distribution of wealth, it must be remembered that the basic maladjustment is in the outrageously unjust distribution of world income between the dominant and suppressed peoples and the rape of land and raw material and the monopoly of technique and culture. And in this crime, white labor is particeps criminis with white capital. 
unconsciously and consciously, carelessly and deliberately. The vast power of the white labor vote in modern democracies has been cajoled and flattered into imperialistic schemes to enslave and debauch black, brown, and yellow labor. So see, black socialists didn't have to get anything from Marx because W.E.B. Du Bois was spitting that reel in 1919. After the London Resolution, Blaise Diagne of Senegal and Grassi and Candace of Guadeloupe dissented and later abandoned Pan-Africanism because they preferred that their countries have equal rights inside of the French metropole rather than independence. They felt the London Manifesto was too extreme and would lead to Africans exchanging one ruler for another, the second being diasporic Africans. It was during this time that Dr. Du Bois became acquainted with the Jamaican political activist, publisher, journalist, entrepreneur, and orator, Marcus Garvey. Garvey was the founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, and he was the promoter of the Back to Africa movement that was based on the widespread belief that African peoples of the diaspora should return to the continent of Africa. Like Dr. Du Bois, Garvey was a Pan-Africanist who campaigned for an end to European colonial rule across Africa and emphasized greater communication and unity between Africans and the African diaspora. But unlike Dr. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey was a racial separatist who went so far as to hold meetings with the Ku Klux Klan to advance his agenda. Now, Black separatism is similar to Black nationalism, which some in Dr. Du Bois' camp espouse and that Dr. Du Bois himself was not entirely opposed to. Black nationalism is focused more on Black pride, racial justice, and the promotion of Black racial identity. In his belief that Black Americans must form a nation within a nation that stress higher education and political engagement to strengthen Black communities, Dr. Du Bois is espo- was espousing some Black nationalist beliefs. Black separatists, on the other hand, desire the physical separation of the races and a homeland for Black Americans or for diasporic Africans in general. And that was what divided Marcus Garvey from Dr. Du Bois. Marcus Garvey was one of the founders of the Black Star Line, a shipping line created to facilitate the transportation of goods and eventually African diasporic Africans throughout the African global economy. The Black Star Line became a key part of Garvey's contribution to the Back to African movement, but it was mostly unsuccessful, partially due to infiltration by federal agents. But it was one among many businesses that the UNIA originated, such as the Universal Printing House, Negro Factories Corporation, and the widely distributed and highly successful Negro World Weekly Newspaper. Dr. Du Bois initially supported the concept of Garvey's Black Star Line, but Garvey's influence and success in securing donations for the UNIA's activities became a cause for concern for Dr. Du Bois and other prominent Black Americans who competed with him for funding for their work. Also troubling Dr. Du Bois was Garvey's intention for diasporic Africans to rule politics and commerce in a liberated and politically unified African continent. Echoing Blaise Diagne and Gracie and sentiments, Dr. Du Bois expressed concern that the Anglo and diasporic Africans were taking up too much space and merely desired to mimic African, um, sorry, mimic American, French, and British colonialism on the continent of Africa. And he reiterated that the Pan-African Congress was committed to securing an Africa ruled by Africans 
who also had equal footing with diasporic Africans, both economically and politically. The UNIA was wildly popular and grew very rapidly. In just over 18 months, it had branches in 25 U.S. states, as well as divisions in the West Indies, Central America, and in West Africa. Though the UNIA never had the membership of the NAACP or the white backing that the NAACP had, it was as influential as the NAACP and vied for the same attention and donations. The NAACP and UNIA differed in their approach, and while the NAACP was a multiracial organization which promoted racial integration, the UNIA had a Black-only membership policy. The NAACP's attention was primarily focused on Black urban professionals such as doctors, lawyers, and teachers, whereas the UNIA's leadership included many poor people and Afro-Caribbean immigrants, leading to an image of itself as a more working-class-oriented organization. Marcus Garvey was a showy and bombastic man who led a very colorful personal life and developed a cult of personality within the UNIA. He was dismissive of the NAACP and its agenda, and in the Negro world, he described Dr. Du Bois as a reactionary under the pay of white men, which is kind of a strange thing to say when Marcus Garvey also accepted donation from white separatists, such as the KKK, to start the Black Star Line. As a matter of fact, uh, James P. Monroe's descendants have had like a foundation uh, that they have been running for years and they gave a ton of money to the UNIA to facilitate the Back to Africa movement. Monrovia, Liberia is named after him, actually. Dr. Du Bois, no stranger to throwing shade in periodicals himself, initially ignored Garvey's insults, but he was deeply interested in how Garvey's organization was operating from a financial standpoint. Now, the UNIA was definitely a business-oriented organization, and in a few short years, it had established the African Legion, which was a paramilitary group with an intelligence ring that reported on other UNI member members to Garvey. It was through this intelligence ring that the FBI was able to take down Garvey by planting a special agent, James Wormley Jones, within the UNIA to build trust and eventually run the organization's correspondence, which eventually led to Garvey's arrest on mail fraud charges. Jones was a white passing Black American policeman and World War I veteran who is best known for having been the first African-American FBI special agent. The UNIA also founded the African Black Cross Nurses and the Negro Factories Corporation, which operated a string of grocery stores, a restaurant, a steam laundry, and a publishing house. Dr. Du Bois, a consummate academic in the purest sense of the word, was, in contrast, terrible with money, and the crisis was perennially in debt due to Dr. Du Bois' refusal to cut corners for any expenses, fearing that it would lead to a decline in the perceived value of the paper. He thus had a keen interest in the workings of the UNIA and outwardly maintained a professional demeanor towards the UNIA and Garvey. In 1921, Marcus Garvey twice reached out to Dr. Du Bois and asked him to contribute to UNIA publications. But this offer was rebuffed. Garvey took this very personally, and the relationship between the two men became acrimonious, with both men using their newspapers and speaking engagements to attack one another. 
1923, Dr. Du Bois described Garvey as a little fat black man, ugly, but with intelligent eyes and a big head. And Marcus Garvey later referred to Dr. Du Bois as a hater of dark people and an unfortunate mulatto who bewails every drop of Negro blood in his veins. Now, again, it's ranting time. The repeated and deliberate misunderstanding of what was meant by the talented tenth, coupled with past and present Garveyites' influence on swaying public opinion on Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, has unfortunately led to many Black people believing that Dr. Du Bois was a colorist, derided darker-skinned Black people, and disliked Marcus Garvey because he was dark and Afro-Caribbean. Now, to the first point, I cannot say for sure whether Dr. Du Bois was colorist or not. From everything I've read, he was no more colorist than any other Black American of his time. And as to his European heritage, he was actually ashamed of it because he felt that it contributed to why his father abandoned him and his mother when he was a child because his father's white father had abandoned his mother back in Haiti. I will also remind you that Dr. Du Bois was very sensitive to having his light skin and European heritage used against him, as had been done in years past by people like Booker T. Washington, who was biracial himself. Dr. Du Bois never referred to himself as a mulatto, and he hated the term, actually. And he reminded people on many occasions that both his parents identified only as Negroes and neither was able to pass for white. There's a photo of him and the original members of the uh, Niagara movement. And he's not even the lightest person in that picture. And he was not white passing. He was actually offended by the idea. And while he did despise Marcus Garvey on a ideological and personal level, he was not among the eight prominent Black Americans who petitioned the U.S. Attorney General to have Marcus Garvey deported back to Jamaica following the assassination of Reverend James Eason, formerly a member of the UNIA, who had started a rival organization after Garvey had him ousted from the UNIA. So Garvey said that he did not order Eason's assassination, but then a couple of days later, he did start a defense fund for the people who did assassinate uh, Reverend Eason, which, I mean, kind of looks a little like, yeah, you did that shit. Now, for all of Dr. Du Bois' faults, he was never a snitch, and he would never think of delivering any Black man into the hands of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. And like I said, he was not one of the eight people who petitioned the U.S. Attorney General. But for whatever reason, rather than attacking those eight people who did petition the U.S. Attorney General to have him deported, Marcus Garvey decided to attack W.E.B. Du Bois and call him all types of names and shit just like spiraled and got out of control. Okay, rant over. In 1923, the third Pan-African Congress was held in London, and after being kicked out again by the Home Office, it was relocated to Lisbon, Portugal. In contrast to its predecessors, the third Pan-African Congress was an unorganized mess. The third Congress repeated the demands of the first and second Congresses, such as self-rule, the problems in the diaspora, and the African-European relationship. The third Congress also addressed the following points. 
The development of Africa should be for the benefit of Africans and not merely for the profits of Europeans. There should be home rule and a responsible government for British West Africa and the British West Indies. Their abolition of the pretension of a white minority to dominate a black majority in Kenya, Rhodesia, which is present-day Zimbabwe and South Africa, and that lynching and mob law in the United States should be suppressed. That second point and the aims of the second and third Pan-African Congress in general influenced a lot of the Afro-Caribbean men who helped put together the West Indian Federation, most notably uh, Dr. Eric Williams, who was the first prime minister of independent Trinidad and Tobago. Before the third Congress met in London, Isaac Baton of the French committee had written to Dr. Du Bois to let him know that the French delegation, which included Blaise Diagne and Gracian Candace of the French Chamber of Deputies, would not be attending. But in a report Dr. Du Bois published in The Crisis, he implied that the French committee had sent delegates because Ida Gibbs Hunt and Rayford Logan, two Black Americans who lived and worked in Paris, had attended. Hunt and Baton were perturbed that Dr. Du Bois would imply that Hunt and Logan attended as part of the French committee. And while Dr. Du Bois' relationship with Ida Gibbs Hunt remained cordial, it never again regained its original closeness. In 1923, U.S. President Calvin Coolidge designated Dr. Du Bois as envoy extraordinaire to the African country of Liberia. And after the Third Congress concluded, Dr. Du Bois rode a German freighter from the Canary Islands to Africa, visiting Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Senegal, where he and Blaise Diagne made up and became friends again, although Diagne remained committed to full enfranchisement within the metropole rather than Senegalese independence. Chapter three, when the Negro was in vogue. After World War I, the cultural movement known as the Harlem Renaissance took place in America's urban centers, primarily Harlem in New York City and Washington, D.C. Some of the leading voices of this Black cultural movement were writers, educators, activists, musicians, and entrepreneurs such as James Weldon Johnson, County Cullen, A. Philip Randolph, Langston Hughes, Hubert Harrison, Claude McKay, Zora Neale Hurston, and others. At the time, it was known as the New Negro Movement, named after The New Negro, a 1925 anthology edited by Alan Locke. The movement also included the new African-American cultural expressions across the urban areas in the Northeast and Midwest United States, 
Affected by a renewed militancy in the general struggle for civil rights, combined with the great migration of African-American workers fleeing the racist conditions of the Jim Crow South, as Harlem was the final destination for a large number of them. The zenith of this flowering of Negro literature, as James Wells and Johnson preferred to call the Harlem Renaissance, took place between 1924, when Opportunity, a journal of Negro life, hosted a party for Black writers, and 1929, which is when the stock market crashed and the Great Depression began. The Harlem Renaissance is considered to have been a rebirth of the African-American arts and its influence birthed several musical styles as well as like stride piano jazz and blues, uh, which later influenced bebop, rock and roll, soul, music, disco, and hip hop. As many of the luminaries of the Harlem Renaissance were in the talented 10th cohort, Dr. Du Bois frequently promoted their artistic creativity in his writings, and his article, A Negro Art Renaissance, celebrated the end of the long hiatus of Black people from creative endeavors. His daughter Yolanda, at her father's urging, married the celebrated poet County Cullen on 9 April 1928 at Salem Methodist Episcopal Church in Harlem. The wedding was the social event of the decade among the African-American elite. Dr. Du Bois planned the wedding with Cullen with very little input from Yolanda. Every detail of the wedding, including the rail car used for transportation and Cullen receiving the marriage license four days prior to the wedding day was considered big news and was reported to the public by every African-American press outlet in the country. Cullen's adoptive father, the Reverend Frederick A. Cullen, officiated the wedding and the church was overcrowded as over 3,000 people came to witness the ceremony. Although Dr. Du Bois was fully ingratiated with the Black elite via his daughter's marriage, his enthusiasm for the Harlem Renaissance began to wane as he came to believe that many whites were visiting Harlem for voyeurism and not for genuine appreciation of Black art. Dr. Du Bois also believed that Black artists had a moral responsibility to use their art to promote Black causes, writing that a Black artist is first of all a Black artist, and said, I do not care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda. By the end of 1926, he stopped employing the crisis to support the Black artists of the Harlem Renaissance. In 1929, Dr. Du Bois participated in a debate organized by the Chicago Forum Council between him and Lothrop Stoddard, a member of the Ku Klux Klan, a proponent of eugenics, and so-called scientific racism. Dr. Du Bois argued the affirmative to the question, shall the Negro be encouraged to seek cultural equality? Has the Negro the same intellectual possibilities as other races? Dr. Du Bois knew that the racist would in be unintentionally funny on stage, and he let the overconfident and bombastic Stoddard walk into a comic moment, which Stoddard then made even funnier by not getting the joke that Dr. Du Bois had set up. This moment was captured in headlines across the country. Du Bois shatters Stoddard's cultural theories in debate, thousands jam hall, cheered as he proves race equality, read the defender, and, um, the New York Times wrote 5,000 cheer W.E.B. Du Bois laugh at Lothrop Stoddard. Chapter four, the gift of black folk then and now. In 1917, representative Leonidas C. Dyer, a Missouri Republican, proposed a memorial to honor black soldiers who had fought in the Civil War. 
The measure, like his anti-lynching bill, passed in the Republican-controlled House but was filibustered by the Democratic-controlled Senate and thus failed to become law. Dr. Du Bois recognized that our national narratives have been morally weighed down by the refusal to accept the centrality of the African-American experience in the development of the United States of America. In his book, The Gift of Black Folk, he sought to change this narrative in order to instill a sense of pride in Black schoolchildren who would have otherwise thought that their ancestors made no meaningful contributions and were incapable of ingenuity and genius. To teach African-American history is to validate a politics of knowledge and resistance. Black history exposes the injustices that have been typically at the telling of history that has been typically dominated by white identity politics. White identity politics seeks to justify the genocide of the indigenous and the enslavement of African people as necessary evils needed to create the American state while never acknowledging how central African indigenous people were to white survival on this continent. W.E.B. Du Bois' gift of black folk was not an appeal to whiteness for inclusion in the broader white supremacist American narrative. It was a radical way of looking at one's blackness in America as something valuable, intelligent, inventive, creative, fun, loving, community-centered, and proud. And that our contributions weren't made as a means of proving that we could be just as American as anyone else. It was something we did for ourselves and for one another, first and foremost. And if white Americans didn't appreciate it, then I guess that's just their bad then. Next episode, W.E.B. Du Bois delves deeper into American labor movements, splits with the NAACP, and flirts with socialism during the Great Depression. Culminating in what I think is the strongest of all his works, the 1935 classic, Black Reconstruction in America. Join me next time for more Musings on History.